the Niger Delta, a region situated in the south-south of Nigeria, harbors the country's billion-dollar resource, crude oil. It has been estimated that since oil exportation began in 1958, Nigeria has made up to $600 billion from oil production, ranking them the 13th largest oil-producing country in the world. That's fantastic, you might be thinking. But at what cost is this being achieved? Despite the billions being made, many local communities have experienced more devastation than they had development. Oil spills have resulted in destroyed farmlands and toxic rivers, which has deprived many communities of the healthy environment they rely on for their livelihood. Meanwhile, the toxic fumes from the burning of crude oil have not only led to a region where cancer is rampant, but the overall life expectancy is 10 years lower than the national average. The refusal of local residents to stay silent about their inhumane treatment has led to a region where violence has become the norm. These events in the Delta are often summarized using the term the Niger Delta conflict, or more specifically, the oil conflict. However, as we can already see, the conflict is about more than just oil. What this popular term fails to acknowledge is that this conflict is multi-layered. The environmental damage, the destruction of livelihoods, governmental corruption, and the rise of violent protest all form a layer. And it is only by recognizing this that the reality of the conflict can be fully understood and eventually resolved. I had the privilege of interviewing Dr. Elias Corson, lecturer at the University of the Niger Delta, and he was quick to make clear that. For me, the conflict is beyond just oil. Making it just an oil complex is simply just uh, simplistic. And that is why it is not going. So together, we will unravel some of the layers that characterize the Niger Delta conflict. Or in other words, we will unravel the reality of the Niger Delta conflict. With oil first being discovered in a small town called Oloibri in 1956, many local residents thought that this new venture would bring greater prosperity to their region. However, as Dr. Corson described in our conversation, this has been far from the reality. In Oloibri, when oil was struck, when I went to Oloibri, an old man told me that when the first oil was struck, they even killed chicken to celebrate it, thinking that, oh, development has come to us. But he said today they are devastated. Instead of development, they got devastation. Dr. Coulson describes how before oil was introduced, the environment was peaceful. People can go they do their fishing. People can go do their farming. They survived on their environment. I think the world is still making a mistake, saying that environmental rights are human rights. I believe human rights are environmental rights. Amnesty reports that the Niger Delta is one of the most polluted places on Earth, with companies such as Shell recklessly spilling oil into communities and releasing toxic gases into the air, residents have become more vulnerable to deadly diseases such as cancer. 
some of us were young when we were growing up in the communities for fishing, for food. You don't need to go far. Somebody does not have fish in his house. But he said, oh, uh, we need to cook. Now, they go to the next stream, and in 10, 20 minutes, they are back with fish. That was how they were interacting with their environment. Their survival depended on the environment. Their existence, they drink from the water, the streams. Even though it may not be clean, but that is where their life revolves on. So their existence was tied to the environment until this corporate bandits came into play. And then over the years, begin to de devastate the environment. And in what ways has the environment been devastated? Can you describe how the environment now looks like? It, we don't have an environment in the Niger Delta. What we have is a polluted region. So you can understand what people are going through. The ecology, either land or water, everything has been destroyed. So people are going through it. People are dying of cancer or known diseases in the Niger Delta. Some people, they don't even have the money to go to the hospital to discover whether it is cancer or not. It's a terrible state. Despite the series of human rights abuses being suffered by local residents, the Nigerian government continues to ignore the pleas of their citizens. This is because of the significant contribution the oil industry makes to the economy, and more specifically, the oil in the Niger Delta, which makes up about 90% of the government's oil revenue. However, if a government must sacrifice its own citizens for its economy to survive, is Nigeria really oil rich or is it oil dependent? I don't have hope in Nigerian government. I don't have hope in the government, not because I was not supposed to, but because it is like telling a man killing you to save you. It's not possible. My, my problem is that the Nigerian government is a business player in the oil industry. The joint venture partnership between the Nigerian government and the oil companies, we are a joint partner. We are the Nigerian government is a business. Because of that business partnership, the Nigerian government's hands are tied. When government has left its primary responsibility of protecting citizens to become partners to corporations. Its main interest will be to protect profit because the main aim of business is profit. For every barrel of oil share produces, the Nigerian government has about 60%. Nigeria's oil dependency has often led to the violent crushing of anyone who dares to interrupt its continual flow. An infamous example of this involved human rights activist Ken Sarawiwa, who was executed along with eight other members of the Movement for the Survival of the Ogoni People. Ogoni being a community particularly devastated by oil operations. It is important to note that protests in this region, like the one led by Ken Sarawiwa, 
started off as non-violent. However, over the years, modes of protesting have become increasingly violent. I have been involved in this struggle, not as an academic, but as an activist and an academic. When the struggle started, people said we should do non-violence. Cancer is known all over the world that it did non-violent. But what happened? The government was violent. After care, they continued the non-violent. But with time, with time, non-violent can only be used in a system where there are democratic norms and where people listen to reason, sense of reason. But when you do non-violent and the next thing you see is violence, the mode of resistance will be determined by the mode of repression. It follows the Marxist view that unequal economic relations will lead to social conflicts. So for many in the Delta, the pauperized state that they have been forced to live in have made many feel as though the only option is to fight, to assert their fundamental rights. In the mid-2000s, a militant group called the Movement for the Emancipation of the Niger Delta emerged. Their strategy involved sabotaging oil pipelines and kidnapping foreign oil workers. However, their reason for adopting a more violent approach was most likely because of the government's failure to listen to the previous non-violent groups and that The only language the Nigerian government will understand is the language of violence. However, the strategy adopted by this group has caused divided opinions. On one hand, this group could be viewed as what Shadi Bushra calls a child of necessity. And on the other hand, they could be viewed as criminals, or as many international observers called them, terrorists. MEND was the acronym for the uh, movement for the emancipation of the Niger Delta. It emerged in mid 2000s as a response to legitimate agitations in the region. That is why MEND was embraced by everyone in the Delta when it first emerged. And men did not just come and say, oh, leave the oil. They, they gave conditions. Their demands were civic. Their demands were civic demands. The revenue sharing formula, you need to look at it. Our environment is degraded. You need to look at it. We need to participate in the oil industry. These are civic demands. But they responded in the language of the government in demanding for that civic nationalism, civic demands. Because if you look at all their demands, we want to be part of the oil economy. We want to have benefit, we want to benefit from the oil economy. So people may call men, you people are thousands of meters away from what is happening on ground and calling people names. He who wears the shoe knows where it pinches. These are young graduates. These are young men whose well of anger 
has no debt. Whose last resort was to pick up arms against the Nigerian state? To say, listen to what we are saying. It's been said that majority of men's members were unemployed youth, which shows the unique effects this conflict has on young people. When I went into the creeks to interview some of the very young boys, I said, ah, you are dealing with a trained Nigerian army who can kill you. And you know what the boy told me? He said, is it not better to die fighting for my right than for me to fold my arms and be taken by death? At that point, I knew that the Nigerian government was fighting a war they cannot win. Because for somebody to tell me, I can't fold my hands, he said everything is gone. I can't fish, I can't farm, so you want me to fold, I have to fight to die. So men emerged with that anger that we cannot continue in this manner. It made me realize that we cannot assume a homogenous experience in any conflict. Although there will always be commonly shared grievances, every experience will vary. I tried to gather some information on the unique experiences of women, and I learned that women are also involved in the struggle, often protesting by shutting down oil flow stations across the region. And I'm just wondering, what's the, do you know the particular struggles of women in all of this? Well, women have done a lot. Women, if you read the, where the Uburodo women in Delta State, shut down the flow station. Then uh, Ijo, Ishakri, and Ugobo women coming together, all coming together. They shut down the flow station. They even came to Wally, shut down the Chevron uh, operations, and they ended up beating them. They were brutalized. That is to tell you, if women could be brutalized, when young men come, what can be done to them? So women are also in the center stage, but they reached the agreement with them. All the agreement have been breached. They reach agreement with you just to calm you down so that you leave. Then nothing is done. But how long will you lie? The actions of protesters began to have a crippling effect on Nigeria's economy as the barrels of oil being produced drastically decreased due to various forms of sabotage. In what could be viewed as more of an attempt to salvage the economy than to give in to the demands of the people, the government introduced an amnesty program in 2009. The aim was to get militant groups to drop down their weapons in return for a monthly stipend and development programs. This brought relative peace to the region but the failure of the government to address the fundamental issues resulted in another militant group emerging in 2016. They went by the name, the Niger Delta Avengers. It's been said that some of the members of this group were also members of MEND, which shows that many feel as though nothing has changed since the early 2000s. The demands of MEND, have they been met? No. That is why Avengers emerged in 2015 or late 2016 because the root cause of the problems are not addressed. What we do is window dressing. 
The Niger Delta question is a simple question. It's a question of development. They are saying developers. The emergence of the latest military group shows that the conflicts in the Delta are still very much present. I intentionally said conflicts and not conflict because if there's anything we've discovered today is that there are multiple conflicts in the Delta, which is what makes it a multi-layered conflict. And so how is it that we're still here? Because people don't want to address the problem. Where you know, see, now you say there is an amnesty. We are going to develop the region, drop your weapons. They drop their weapons, but the region is not developed. Nobody is addressing the fundamental issues till today. They know that the issues in the Niger Delta cannot be resolved, but the political will, the determination to say these issues must be resolved is not there. For me, that is the major issue. And so we see that there are so many complexities even within each of the layers that form the conflict. It is why Professor Michael Watts calls it the oil complex. But however complex it is, it can be resolved. If the political will is there. If the events in the Niger Delta could be recognised for all of its complexities, perhaps the appropriate solutions will start to be enacted. So do you have any hope for the Niger Delta? My hope is a very bleak, it's a very bleak hope. Bleak in the sense that uh, I would have been hopeful if we had people who had listening ears. It is time that oil companies started to take responsibility for their actions, whilst the Nigerian government must shift their priorities to the well-being of their citizens. A region with peace will be a much more economically profitable society. A lady wrote to me that uh, she's writing a paper uh, post-conflict in the Niger Delta. I said there is no post-conflict in the Niger Delta. I said there is a suppressed conflict in the Niger Delta or suspended. I said, because when you say post, I said post means the conflict is over. I said, but here, it is not over. I said for a conflict to be over, issues have been addressed. And there is an agreement that these issues have been addressed. I said here you have that issues are not addressed. So would you say people have just learned to live with it? People are living with it and devising strategies. What we call after Avengers, I don't know, but something will come. And so, as we can see, the consequences that flow from the presence of crude oil in the Delta cannot be separated. From the environmental devastation, to the destruction of livelihoods, the rise of violent protesting and corrupt governance. They are all different consequences, but they are all linked. And this is what makes it a multi-layered conflict. To call it an oil conflict, or the Niger-Delta conflict, oversimplifies the reality of the conflict in the Delta. And so it is only by recognising each layer for all of its complexities that the appropriate remedy can be applied. And perhaps the next time we have this conversation, it will be about the post-conflict in the Delta.